This episode of Converge with my guest, Lisa Congdon, is sponsored by WeaveWriter. For more information, check out WeaveWriter.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things. And when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. The idea of creating a career as an artist is a daunting one. So many people struggle with the notion of, can I not only make stuff, but make stuff in a way that would be valuable for others to appreciate and and pay for. It's the kind of idea that many people dream of, too. It's this kind of love-hate thing where, can I actually feed those I'm responsible for, including myself, put a roof over my head, and still express myself honestly? Today's guest is Lisa Congdon, and she and I have a chance today to talk a little bit about what it means to be an artist, what it means to take that art and bring it to the world for a point and for profit. But I think what you'll find from this uh, fine artist and illustrator and speaker and author is a unique perspective that you actually can do your best work and do it in such a way that other people will value it. So there's a certain level of abandon that you have to have. You can't wait for the perfect moment to put your work out into the world. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Lisa, welcome to Converge. So great to be here with you today. I am so excited for this conversation on a number of fronts. Um, You know this already, but our audience here at Converge come from a broad spectrum of backgrounds. They could be photographers, writers, uh, illustrators, designers, creators of all sorts, and they're trying to to do exactly what you've not only done in your career, but now you're helping other people go and do likewise. So uh, no pressure, but I really hope you carry the weight of the world on your shoulders right now. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Will you share a little bit about, I mean, you've done so much already. You've written books, you have uh, whatever you are, be a good one. You have this new book coming out, Art Inc. You're speaking all over the place. You're you're a blue collar worker too. You're like doing the work right now, whether all over the place. How did you get from from where you were to where you are? Well, my story is a little different than a lot of people out there, although I think there are a lot of other people out there like me. I didn't actually pick up a paintbrush until I was about 31 years old, um, which is about 15 years ago now. And at first, I, you know, I was just a hobby. I was working full-time for an education nonprofit. I had been an elementary school teacher and um, sort of found my way into the nonprofit world, working in public schools. And to relieve stress and sort of deal with some of life's challenges, I decided to take some art classes. The first class I took was actually with my brother. Um, he's a couple you, you years say, older. You me. say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> no, it's funny because, you know, it, it just seems sort of like when you look at us as a pair, it was an unlikely thing that the two of us would do together. Yeah. And of course, he took this one class with me and never picked up a paintbrush again. And it sort of changed my life, that class. I but, love that. Yeah. At first, it was just kind of like this thing to do. And um, I had always been a creative person. My mom is an artist, and but I had never really pursued it or even considered the idea of going to art school or 
anything. I didn't really actually even consider myself very artistic. And, uh, you know, I was, I'm a pretty athletic person. I was always one of those kids who was outside. Fast forward to my early 30s, started taking art classes and making stuff at my kitchen table. Um, and then a few years later, this thing called the internet became a bigger part of my life. And I started a blog. And the blog actually itself was not the blog I have now. I, uh, well, I had actually been painting and drawing for a few years when I started the blog. But I was brave enough at that point to start sharing what I was making on this original blog that I had. And at the time, blogging was just one of those things that was in its infancy. So I was meeting people who were also making things and sharing them. And I joined Flickr, which, you know, fewer and fewer people use now. But at the time, it was like, oh, it was the thing. for a lot of us, oh, you yeah. know, imagine for you as a photographer, it was like the first social media, right? Like anybody who was a visual person was on Flickr and sharing things. And I mean, I made so many friends when I first joined in 2004 that 10 years ago, I'm still, you know, really close to. So, so that's sort of how it started. And then, of course, you know, once you start sharing your work, it isn't necessarily going to happen that people are going to take an interest in buying it. So it, what, it did take some time, but and it wasn't even my intention you know, when I was putting it out there that I would sell it. Again, it was just a hobby. It was this thing that I did for fun. I was also sewing and making all kinds of things in different, you know, mixed media. And I was really experimenting. But over the couple of years, some folks took an interest in what I was doing and things that I was sharing. And I just sort of started to sell bits and pieces of my work, have really small shows in little cafes. And it was around that time that I started to think of myself as an artist, like, oh, I'm not, this isn't just a hobby. This is something that other people appreciate. But still, at the time, I had no idea it would become my livelihood. I still thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll still work at my nonprofit and I'll, I'll just do this on the side. And then over the course of the next, I don't know, five years, it sort of exploded for me. Um, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm not suggesting at all it was by chance. Um, once I realized that I was doing certain things that were helping to sell my work, helping to get my name out there. I started doing more of those things strategically. Wow, there's there's so much in this that I want to talk about, <laughs> and and honestly, on a on a personal level, I'm I'm really I'm touched on a lot. We we didn't talk about this, I don't think, but I started photography about 12 years ago. I was in my early 30s as well, and uh, very unlikely, I was actually teaching at a liberal arts college, and uh, a student uh, of mine came along. He was this upstart photographer, really doing well. I told him of my interest in gear. And uh, he said, oh, well, you should start shooting things. And I shadowed him on a couple of events. And then all of a sudden, I really wanted the gear. And I just stumbled into it and it ruined my academic career. I mean, I absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> it, it messed everything up. But uh, so there's kind of things that are parallel that I can really appreciate about what you're describing. And and even in, in the books that I've written, I've talked about that notion of being a late bloomer, or at least feeling like a late bloomer, or living under this storyline in my head that... I can't do this. Like, I'm not, I'm not young enough. I'm not smart enough. Like I felt like that Saturday Night Live character, you know, for self-esteem or something. I needed someone to tell me that, doggone it, I'm good enough or something. Yes. And, and, and in the middle of that, I'm wondering, did you experience any of that dynamic? And, and I guess second part to that question is, and I'm sure you get this all the time, when people come up to you and say, hey, I think I'm, you know, fill in the blank, some limiting conversation that is getting in the way of them and their art. Well, how do you direct them? Well, 
the answer to your first question is yes, of course. And in fact, I still do sometimes yeah, me, me too. <laughs> deal with that sort of inner doubt. I call it, you know, or a lot of people call it the imposter syndrome. I mean, those of us who didn't go to art school, and I actually, I've come to understand through talking to people that even people who did go through traditional channels to become artists also suffer from the imposter syndrome, like this idea that we don't deserve any success or that we don't really belong in this place where we found ourselves as if having no talent or business acumen could get you um, in our career. So yes, I, I, I have experienced that. It's, it's not as bad as it used to be. And to answer your second question, you know, when I, and I do get a lot of questions or um, especially from people who know my story and email me perhaps to just sort of share that they are also 32 or 42 or even 52 and feel this desire to really like make a living from their art, even part-time, but there's something that's holding them back or some inner voice that's telling them it's not possible. And, you know, my mantra is always, um, it's like when you have a dream and, or some sort of passion and you abandon it, um, you're sort of abandoning part of yourself. Right. And that there's a part of you that like is wounded from that in a way, um, that you owe it to yourself to at least pursue your dream in whatever way makes sense for you. And that, you know, we really owe it to ourselves to give it, give it a try. Now that's not always easy. I don't want to, you know, anybody to like think that getting to the place where I've maybe gotten in my career as an illustrator or where some people have gotten in their careers as fine artists or photographers or, you know, ceramics artists, you know, have gotten there easily. It does require a lot of discipline and sacrifice and hard work, but my message is always it's possible. And another thing that I do believe is that there's an audience for almost everyone's work, that my audience and the people who buy my work might be different than the people who like and enjoy and buy your work, but there's something out there for everyone. And so the trick is to just sort of find your people, um, the people who want to pay you to illustrate or buy your originals or buy your prints or in some way, you know, enjoy your work or spread the news about your work or whatever. And so part of it is like doing your thing, but then also finding who your community is and who your audience is. Mm. It's going to be different for everyone. Just because I'm successful with my audience, my particular niche in the market doesn't mean you're going to be successful with the same market. It might be a totally different one for you. Yeah. Um, but I do believe there's something out there for everybody. You know, that's an interesting perspective. I, I have a similar sentiment, if, if I'm getting you right, that... You know, if, if everyone has a unique signature, uh, especially if their if their propensity is to to look at folks they have high esteem for and try to emulate them, not just as like a, a means to practice, but if they try to build their career or their body of work around emulating other folks. My friend Todd Henry likes to say, you know, cover bands never change the world. That that notion, uh, assuming people are actually tapped into what they were made to do, that they have a they have a shot, and in fact, they don't have to be too concerned around the competitive environment, because if they're true to what they were made to do, which is no small thing, like you acknowledged that they have a shot, but it's interesting. I recently heard an interview with this guy named uh, Ryan holiday. I don't know if you know who Ryan is, but he is, uh, for those who, who are listening at home, uh, Ryan is, he came out with a recent book on uh, stoicism. He's very controversial. He's really into things like marketing and hacking marketing, basically a, a way to build traffic by doing clever cheats. He's very no-nonsense. He has a tremendous success record. But one of the things he said was he would he'd go to these conferences and 
people would come up after him and he'd be very nice to them and he'd forget them right after the conversation had what's happened. And the reason he'd forget them is because they would pitch them on their thing, whatever cool thing they're doing. And everything was so forgettable. He, he, he was just candid in this moment in the interview where he said, look, the reason most products don't make it, and I might even slip into this question, the reason most services or most expressions of art or whatever don't make it is because he just thinks that they're not very good. That not everyone actually, even if they have a signature angle on something, uh, if they're creating something, if they don't have that skill set, that talent, that something, that they probably need to go back and do more hard work to refine it. And I'm, I'm curious in your situation, as, as you have been out speaking at so many different places and you're talking to folks, as someone comes up to you and maybe they pull out their book and they're showing you some of their work and you just have that, that feeling of like maybe how Ryan was describing it, right. like this mm -hmm. notion of like, yeah, yeah you're, you're not there yet. How, how do you engage someone like that to both encourage them or actually just give them a better gift, which might be more truth telling? How do you engage? That's a, that's a great question. It's hard. But when people do ask me questions, I try to give, you know, as honest feedback as I can. And I do think, so first of all, like this idea of authenticity, I'm, I feel like, you know, in some ways it's a, it's a word that's lost a bit of meaning, but at the core, right, you are finding that thing that that particular voice, right, in your art that that is going to make it unique enough. But you also have to work really hard at developing that and making it as complex and interesting and different as possible so that, that there's a market for it. I do often say to people, I think you're on the right track, but, you know, yeah, like keep working on this, keep developing it. And there are a lot of benefits to finding mentors and people in your community um, whether you're a, a ceramics person or a photographer or a painter who you can sign up with, um, either pay or just in a friendly way, get feedback from. And that I feel like is really, really helpful. So really engaging in trying to improve your work by getting feedback from other people and or getting your work in a place where it's ready for prime time is really important. Although I, you know, when I first started, I wasn't thinking about any of that. I actually... Now that I look back on the work I was making seven or eight years ago, I'm like mortified by it. Sure. But yet at the time it was where I was. Right. And so I put it out there as if it was like the best thing since sliced bread. I look back at it now that my work is so much more refined and developed than it was back then. And I think, oh, God, what was I thinking? Please make that go away. But I'll probably think the same thing about my current work in 10 years. You know, that's just how how we go. But, you know, so there's a certain level of abandon that you have to have. You can't wait for the perfect moment to put your work out into the world. Hmm. You have to sort of take risks even in the beginning. And yet at the same time, you have to keep on working on making it better and finding your own unique, you know, voice and perspective in the, in the art world. You know, I love that on so many fronts, because really what I'm hearing you say is you're distinguishing between a couple of skill sets. You know, one is the, the honing of your craft or the art itself. And then there's this new kind of mandated skill set that any creative professional has to have now, which is, you know, bringing things to market or finding a market or identifying who you're speaking to and positioning well. And that that is if you do that second part really well, you, you can find your target quicker <laughs> Uh, yeah. or, or maybe even at all in some cases. 
But one one of the things that I, I loved as I was kind of getting to know you before we met before this call and kind of immersing myself in your work a little bit was I spent some time on your website and you have a really clever frequently asked questions section and there were, I actually felt like I got to know you in a fresh way. You're very candid and your your writing style is very elegant and very human. I felt like I was I was in tune with what you're saying. But it seemed like, if I'm reading between the lines, that you are very careful to create really kind of quarantine space for that first skill set, for the the actual art making. And and it seems like you protect that firewall pretty strongly. Uh, am I, did I read that right? Yeah, I mean, that that really is the goal. And I feel like what can happen often, so I am both an artist, also like have a public face, right? I write a blog that thousands of people read every day. I've written a couple of books. You know, that sort of puts me in this position of, taking on a lot of, the, of other things that I enjoy, by the way, like podcasts and interviews and teaching. I teach classes and I enjoy talking about making art for a living. I wrote a book about it. But at the same time, like at the core of what I do and what I have to come back to every single day is this like sort of, yeah, protected time to make art and be creative and finding that balance between talking about being an artist and being an artist so that one doesn't usurp the other because I love them both feels really important to me. And, and so I am very protective of my time. And I, you know, for example, you know, I get asked out to coffee a lot by people who want to pick my brain about things. And there was a time when that was a lot of what I did. Um, and I don't, I don't really have time to do that anymore. So I'm trying to be really judicious about saying yes to coffee dates because ultimately I need to be in my studio making art, you know, for to to pay the bills and and also just to feed me. That's what I, you know, like to feed my soul, not just my stomach, right? Like that's what I love to do. That's those days when I get to go to my studio all day and draw and paint are my favorite days. That's what it's all about for me. So, so yeah, I'm I'm pretty protective of that time as much as I can be, obviously. I love the distinctions you're making. And apparently I love a lot of things as I'm listening <laughs> to you. <laughs> like I, I, and I'm not saying that tokenly, like I'm really drawn in. And, and I, in a moment, I actually want to get more in depth around uh, the new book that's coming out, Art Inc. But before we get there, I want to just touch back to one more piece that maybe sets the table. Earlier, you talked about uh, your life when you, I'm guessing as a, an adolescent uh, into your 20s, you're an athlete, uh, you went into liberal arts. I'm kind of curious the influence of liberal like the liberating arts on what you do, then you find yourself creating a, in a mo like on a kitchen table kind of moment. Uh, you start writing about that and you're back and forth between both, like you just distinguished between the art making and then the talking about it yeah. uh, kind of back and forth. And in the middle of that, you also talked about this notion of starting small and then having a tipping point at some point or where it exploded. Yeah. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about those that progression. I guess I don't want, I'm not so concerned about the early days because everyone has to start small on some level, but how did that hockey stick turn feel? Like, did you, were you conscious it was coming? Did you have belief it was on its way? Did your worldview inform kind of a trust or a faith that, you know, if you, if you just did these things, you would find yourself where you needed to be? Just talk a little bit about that, that process. Yeah, all of the above, I would say. I think there is a certain set of core beliefs that I have about life in general and setting intentions about what you want to do with your life. And let's face it, like becoming an artist was born out of dissatisfaction for me with other aspects of my life. Hmm. Not in this sort of like overt way, or it's not even as if I made some proclamation 
you know, back when I was 31 or 32 and took my first art class that like, ah, this is going to change my life, you know, or I am going to be this thing that I never was. And, um, it was way more subtle than that, but, but really we often do creative things, even as children who then, you know, grow up to go to art school and become famous artists. Like there's this intention to like, you know, creative acts are like, you know, this like interesting, um, retaliation against, you know, like boredom and mediocrity and all these things that we're constantly fighting against. Right. And so for me, just taking art classes and spending time as a, you know, a woman who, a single woman who was 32 years old, sitting at my kitchen table, making art on a Saturday night, instead of going on dates, you know, (laughs) like there was this way that, that it was like so exciting to me and so different than anything I had ever done that there was just this raw passion that I had for it that was really at the foundation. But then there was also this belief that like, if I, after a while, like once I realized I actually had some talent and people were showing an interest that like, Hey, if I do this thing and I maybe work hard at it, it could become something. And I don't remember ever feeling that strongly about anything. Like I had had a career in the nonprofit world. And I mean, I have other passions besides making art but they had never been that strong. And so I really got clear about hoarding off time in my day to, to make art. And this was way before, you know, I made a living from it. Um, and then I just sort of have a very like put your head down and plow through kind of attitude about life. Um, because also while making art is very exciting, it can also be really frustrating because often in your head, you have a vision for how you want something to look and your execution skills are terrible. You know, I think even people who go to art school and learn techniques, you know, suffer from, you know, not being able to execute their ideas because they don't have the technical skill. And so, you know, so there's also a lot of frustration that comes through it. And you have to really have this ability to like, put your head down and, and work through all of the frustrations and difficulties and believe somehow that all of the passion and, you know, romance that you feel in making art is, is just as important and matters as much as the frustrations. So I had a lot of that. And then, you know, in your introduction, you were talking a little bit about this idea that like you make art for yourself, but then when you find out other people enjoy it and want to buy it, there's something about that that is super exciting. And so then that started for me and that slowly grew. And I was like, oh, people want to pay money for this. Other people like this too. I don't just like making it. Other people think it's pretty. Um, Of course, that's a a huge motivator for not just for me, but I think for a lot of artists, you know, this idea that other people like what we do. And that, of course, like kept me going um, and kept me working hard and wanting to improve my work and get better and better. And eventually I, I got representation with an illustration agent. And I, you know, started having shows at galleries and it's like every time over the course of years that something, some ante was upped, you know, my work was going to be in front of more people or I had more exposure. It just has always driven me to try to be better and more creative or try the next best thing to, to keep my work relevant and current. So I know it's a very long winded answer to your question. <laughs> it's really helpful on, on a number of fronts. And, and it's funny, you've mentioned this a few times in this conversation, this kind of fundamental moment where you, 
you made a decision that, you know, you were an artist. And even yes. as I'm, as I think about your, your new book, you, you start the book by inviting the reader to say like, you are, you are an artist. And then, and then you, you're very gentle to then say, but you don't have to be a starving artist. Like <laughs> there's this both end where you have to embrace it, but then just don't be dumb about it. Like set yourself up in the right trajectory. Yeah. I mean, ask anybody who's studied art or, or maybe not studied art, but always loved art or wanted to be an artist, why they're not an artist. And I bet you, you know, 99% of the time that person will tell you that somebody, somebody or some book or some person gave them the message that it wasn't a viable option. Um, like, permi like permission. Yeah. Or, or, or like, actually a lack like, of permission. Right. That, 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 or that, you know, it's just not possible um, to make a living as an artist. And, and actually, there was a time when it was much harder than it is now, for sure. Well, would you say so. would you say it was harder and easier? I mean, it, like I think of there's so many that there was a recent uh, I think it was a New York Post piece after Mick Jagger's girlfriend uh, took her life, where they were talking about the creative class and how the expectations on the creative class is to kind of you know wear the best and look the best and be at everything and be kind of in that second distinction of living on the, on the shoulders of the things that you made. But the expectations are also to, you know, it's kind of expensive to do that, especially if you live in New York and the pressures. And in her case, she was so under underwater, uh, apparently she, she lost hope and she just didn't see a way out and, and didn't want to retreat on her, on her lifestyle. And it, it does seem like you're right that there's greater access than ever to find an audience and to sell to that audience. But you also acknowledge that there's never been more people trying to do that thing at the same yeah. time. Absolutely. So yeah, it's, it is this sort of double-edged sword, right? So on the one hand, you have um, this thing called the internet, which we've been talking about, which is this platform that exists that didn't exist before. Before, in order to be a successful artist, for the most part, you had to be discovered by somebody else who was very wealthy or important. Um, you had to have gone through art school in most cases. Um, there are obviously exceptions to that. And you had to have training and sign with a gallery or sign with an illustration agent would then work on promoting your work for you. And it was sort of difficult in a way. And you had, there were only a handful of people, right, who could really do it um, because there were only a handful of opportunities. And that, that part has changed, right? We've got this, anybody can put their work out there. And if they do it well enough, they can make it. But yes, there is this enormous pressure attached to that. I don't really believe in competition. Um, I think that there's a space out there for everybody in some way or another to make a living as a creative person. But I do believe that, you know, the market is saturated and there are more people, you know, making art and trying to make a living from it than ever before. And that's a wonderful thing. But it also means that there's just a lot more for people who buy art to choose from. And coupled with that, there is this pressure that you were referring to earlier, which is that in order to make it and be part of the the viable art market or illustration market that you constantly have to promote yourself and you have to participate in events and you have to say yes to everything. And, um, you, you have sort of put yourself out there in social media and yeah, you got to go to the, all the art openings and introduce yourself to people and network. So in some ways it's easier. Yes. But in some ways it's harder. And there is a lot of pressure that comes with that for sure. I, uh, I just watched the Wimbledon final and Roger Federer, lost this year uh it was an incredible game a match actually between him and and Djokovic and if you're not a tennis fan forgive me <laughs> but uh these two kind of perennial all-stars at tennis and, and Roger Federer you know he, he's just won more than everyone and 
at one point there was this interview that he, he took just before the match happened. And in the interview, he said, basically, you know, I love, I love winning more than I hate losing. And that's why I keep playing. And I was so struck by it. In fact, not only was I struck by it, but John McEnroe, you know, this another kind of yeah. old winner, um, said he was jealous of Roger when he said that because he realized that he was primarily motivated by not losing. And and he, he would say that it limited his, his capacity and career. And, and even as you're describing this as an artist, this, it seems like there's a lot of analogy here to this notion of committing to really doing this right does require a high degree of discipline does require kind of an understanding of a, a worldview that kind of gives you space to create the two worlds that are required. But it's, it's also not for everybody. Like he, Roger Federer actually went so far as to say, you know, if you don't, if you're not up for this, um, it's really okay. You don't have to be a professional athlete. <laughs> and in a sense, that's true for artists too, right? Like there, there is such a pull in different directions all the time and you have to kind of be awake at the wheel so often. Would you agree that not everyone even though they possibly could do it, that they might not have the disposition for it or it might not just be for them. Absolutely. In fact, um, one of the chapters in Art Inc. Is, is about promoting your work. And one of the messages that I think comes through is unless you're willing to promote your work in this period of time that we're in, you know, it's all about accessing and using social media to promote your work. If you're not willing to do that on a regular basis, you know, chances are you're not going to, I mean, there are other ways to do it for sure. In some of the more traditional ways, like, you know, working for a prestigious gallery or, you know, having somebody else do your marketing for you. But for the average Joe, it's a lot about putting yourself out there. And there are so many people who are just not comfortable doing that. Um, and they just don't want to. And it's not worth it to them. Um, and, you know, one of the messages that I also try to give in the book is that unless you're making and promoting your work in a way that feels comfortable to you, and that is aligned with your like core values and your personality and who you are, you're going to be miserable. So unless you're comfortable figuring out how to promote your work or put yourself out there as an artist um, in this very saturated market, you're going to have a hard time. Um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't different ways or that everybody has to do it the same way, because that's absolutely not true. But you got to find the way that works for you. And you've got to be willing to put yourself out there, at least in the beginning. You know, and, and just there are just a lot of people who that for, for whom that is not an option. And and then and so they might make art, but they're not necessarily going to make a living from it because because a lot of it is the sort of pimping yourself for lack of a better word. <laughs> and it feels really exhausting sometimes. Well, and especially, you know, I know for me, when I when I feel like a pimp and <laughs> doing yeah. that, uh, I am usually not comfortable in my own skin. But there's other moments where. It's not actually labor at all. It's just, uh, it's, it doesn't even feel like self-promotion at all. It's, it's just kind of part of the rhythm of my life. Yeah. I found the right spot and, and it's in sync with kind of my own working knowledge of who I am and how I tick. And, and I, you know, there's a season in my life where I really felt this need to be kind of a used car salesman kind of promoter. And then I just, I wanted to vomit every day. I hated the feeling. And, but then, and I, it was amazing though, a couple subtle shifts and I just realized like, I didn't have to do it that way. There's a whole yeah. there's a whole spectrum of possibilities on ways to let people know what you're doing. Absolutely. That's such a great way to put it. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, for the folks that that this is a fit for, for the people who are they're like, you know, I'm up for this and I've been up for it, but I need to I need to either stair step my career or 
uh, make a jump or whether I'm starting out or I'm, I've been at this for a while and I need a refresh, the comprehensive nature of what you do with Art Inc. is, is pretty cool to me. So just so folks at home know, some of the categories that are talked about are beginning with identity. So like, who are you as an artist? At least this is how I read it. Then thinking about it from a business perspective, talking about promotion, talking about selling, they're different things, uh, talking about showing. But then the last piece I was really struck by is I kind of lumped into the category of being organized and having this skill set around, you called it managing the ebb and flow of success and the highs and lows emotionally, in a sense, that's organizing your heart and mind. There's also, we talked already about organizing your day around, you know, where are you creating your work, the work itself, and how are you talking about it? Talk a little bit about how you order your interior world <laughs> to make well, all of that work. I like the, I like that you were use the word organized. I hadn't really thought of it that way. You know, in some ways it's prioritizing. So, you know, when you've been doing this for a while, or even if you're just starting out, what you notice immediately when it becomes your focus is that you have choices, you know, say opportunities are coming your way. So you have to choose amongst the opportunities or maybe opportunities aren't coming your way. So you have to choose how you're going to spend your time in order to have more opportunity or to break into some market that you're interested in breaking into. So there's all these choices we always have to make, right? And that takes a certain amount of organizing, not just of time, but of you know, what am I really interested in doing and how am I interested in spending my time? Do I want to be an illustrator? Do I want to be a fine artist? Do I, do I, am I interested in selling my own work or do I want to let somebody else take care of that for me? So really doing some exploration about what feels important. What are my goals? And, you know, like, how do, how am I going to get there? And really kind of figuring out a way to create a life for yourself that is reflective of what your goals are. In the last, say, five years, my career has really taken off, and it's a good problem to have, of course, but I have, you know, opportunities coming into my inbox really often. And um, in the beginning, I didn't. So I would just say yes to any opportunity that came my way. Um, now I have to make choices, and I hate saying no because I really am a people pleaser, <laughs> and I also, um, which I'm fighting um, daily, but I also... Um, realize like one of the gifts of working solidly for five years is that you figure out what you like to do and what you don't like to do. You know, I'm sure as a photographer, you know, you figure out like, what are the jobs and shoots that really resonate for me? And what are the ones that I know I never, even though it pays a ton of money, I never want to say yes to again. That's right. You know? And so it's like figuring out what those are and then developing some criteria for how you're going to spend your time. So, you know, for me, I realized that saying no meant saying yes in some ways. So if I said no to one thing, it just opened up either time or opportunity for things that I wanted, you know, to spend more time doing. And that is a privilege of having worked for a few years is that I get to make more of those choices. Often when we're starting out in any kind of, you know, creative business, um, we just need to build our portfolio. We need to build our client list or, you know, our gallery list or um, whatever. And so we're just sort of just doing everything that comes our way. But at some point you have to make choices. And so that chapter is really about what that looks like. And, um, and also how do we choose to handle, um, downtime things like either if we choose to take time off, how are we going to spend it? Or if things are slow, what, what, what can, how can we use our time? I feel like that's what, these are things that we don't normally talk about. Um, like the other side of success, what happens when you get too busy and you have too much opportunity and you get overwhelmed? Yeah. 
which is the goal, right? <laughs> you want work to be in demand, but you also need to have some sense of balance in your life so that you don't feel like you're going crazy. Well, it's fine. Yeah, it's, I, I've abandoned the idea of balance. I don't know anyone who actually is, so I, I don't think it, it's real. But I, I wonder if living in tension, at least that, that's how I, I call it. Because as you're even you're describing the the kind of progression of your career, and you know, it's not like the career's done. It's like the career's continuing. So earlier on, you had more time than money. So you got to spend time a lot of different ways. Yeah. <laughs> now you have maybe more money than time. So you're going to be careful. You're going to budget accordingly. And there's a tension there in all of those kind of seasons. And I, I know in my career, you know, I've had peaks and valleys for sure. And with every peak, there will be a valley, you know, even if it's temporary or seasonal. And what I'm struck by is you're right. There's this need to kind of contract and like just, you know, the ebb and flow, as you kind of framed it, of as this as this existence continues, how do I, how do you, how does the listener put themselves in a position where they're getting highest and best for whatever set of circumstances they're in? It's true. Maria Popova, who writes Brain Pickings. and I love her. A, I love her. <laughs> I had uh, collaborated with her a lot. She's a good friend, and she gave a talk at the same conference I did last year. And she said exactly what you said, you know, that like this whole notion of balance, like she's figured out there is no such thing, especially when you're a really passionate, creative person. Yeah. And I and I if you go back into my blog posts over the last couple of years, you see me struggling with this idea that I'm going to find balance. It's just a matter of time. I've just got to figure it out. And what I've really come to is that it's true. It's like it's about choices and um you know, in some ways it's work, work balance, not work life balance. Like yeah, what work right. am I choosing to do? Because or, in a way I never turn my brain off. I never really stop working. Um, I think a lot of creative people don't. Um, yeah. It's more about how we choose to spend our time and, and that we're getting like the, the value, the, in, the sort of internal satisfaction and even, you know, the fi financial gain from what we're doing that is sort of optimal in however we're using our time. Lisa Congdon, what a pleasure to have you on Converge. H how can people find you and how can people find uh, your new book, Art Inc.? Well, Art Inc. comes out August 12th, 2014, and will be in all major bookstores and on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all of those great places. I um, have a website that's lisacongdon.com, and my blog, which is attached, is lisacongdon.com slash blog. And... Um, there are all kinds of links on the sidebar of my blog where you can go and shop for my my artwork and my books and take my classes and listen to some of the talks that I've given. So that those are the best places to find me. This was episode 023 of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. FastTrackCreative.com is our home where you'll find past episodes, our Better Together creativity community, and a ton of other resources for artists looking to make a difference with their creations. Music today provided by TripleScoopMusic.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Quaza at acreative.co for her audio production. And a special thanks to Lisa for being with us. Visit her at lisacongdon.com. As usual, I want to thank you for spreading the word about the show. When you leave questions and comments on the site and rate us on places like iTunes, we recognize that you caring enough to do that sort of thing is a really big deal. And we're grateful. That's it for now. I'm Dane Sanders. I'll see you here next time.